Well, hey, Meadowbrook Church family, uh, good morning and welcome to worship with us once again. So glad that you are uh, watching, that you're participating, that you're lifting your voice in song and prepared to hear from the Lord today through His Word. Uh, if you're a guest of ours, uh, if you're not part of our regular crowd, thank you for uh, watching as well. Thank you for participating. Uh, if there's any way that we can serve you during these days or beyond, don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can send us a, a private message on Facebook, uh, send me an email, uh, call our church office. We'd love to know if there's a way that we can serve you or guide you during this season or the season ahead. But at this time, let me invite you all to open up God's Word with me. Let's look at the Scriptures. Let's look at the Bible today as we hear from the Lord. And last week, uh, we began a new message series titled Family Matters, looking at God's design for family, for marriage, for relationships, leaning into what His Word has to say for us during this season. And I do remember, I remember the day that I got married, sort of. I don't remember all the words that were spoken, but I do remember the surreal feeling of making a lifelong commitment to someone else. I remember the crowd that gathered in the church building that day to witness the wedding ceremony. I remember the family photos that we took beforehand to capture uh, that day. Uh, I remember the reception that followed with cake and food and family and friends all gathered together in celebration. You see, a Christian wedding is reason to celebrate. Uh, a Christian wedding ceremony includes exchanging vows that read something like this. Uh, I, Chris, take thee, Ashley, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, uh, to love and to cherish until death do us part. Now, what a promise. Uh, what a commitment. I, I don't know about you other married folk out there, but that is tough. That's really tough. In fact, thinking back, I'm not really sure I knew the extent of the commitment that I was making on that day. But I know it's good. I know family is a good thing. I know marriage is a good thing. I know it's part of God's good design. I know that the family is the basic unit of any society, and a society will only be uh, as healthy and stable as the families that comprise it. It's no secret that during this COVID-19 pandemic, many of us uh, are having opportunities to spend a, a bit more time with family, uh, for better or for worse. In fact, if your news feed, your email inbox is anything like mine recently, then uh, perhaps you've seen some articles that are aimed at strengthening family relationships, sustaining marriages in the midst of this quarantine. Here, quarantine. Here are a few that have uh, passed across my screen over the last few days. Uh, sick and tired? Uh, don't take it out on your spouse. Uh, isolating with a partner? Uh, relationship therapists share stress reduction strategies. Uh, how to stay in love while you're stuck in the house? Or here's a meme that was floating around Facebook this week. Uh, Y'all married people holding up okay? I haven't seen I'm so blessed or he's my everything in a while. See, the truth is family relationships are tough. They test us. Too much of anyone else tests us, even if we love them, because our love for others 
is flawed. It's not a perfect love. We don't love with a perfect love. In fact, this morning, if you're sitting in a room with your husband or your wife, turn to them now and say, I don't love you with a perfect love. Go ahead, let them know. They already know. If you don't think they know, just ask those. Ask those that you live with how you love them. If you love them perfectly. You see, on my own, I'm just about always looking out for me. What I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I think there's a country song about that out there somewhere. And and so are you. Looking out for you. Looking out for me. On your own, you are just about always looking out for you because on our own, we are ruled by sin. We are consumed with pride, with selfish ambition, personal interest. We're consumed with this, often at the expense of, of others. But it wasn't always like that. No. Not in the beginning. In the beginning, God created a perfect man to live in and to work a glorious garden. He was to rule over the animals and to enjoy God's constant presence and God's constant and perfect provision. He had everything he could ever need. He was the crown of God's creation, mighty, and as we'll see today, matchless in all creation. Nothing else like him. Why? Because as we saw Last week from Genesis chapter 1, nothing else in all of creation uh, was made in the image of God. And so today we come to Genesis chapter 2, another angle on the creation story. Genesis 1 is the, the wide angle view recounting God creating the physical world with creatures and life, all that lives and walks and breathes in it. Genesis 2 then is the narrow view. It's zooming in on God creating the crown of his creation, man and woman. Chapter 1 concludes with the creation of humanity in God's image and God's charge to them to to rule over the rest of creation. And then chapter 2 parallels and unpacks this just a bit. What does it mean that God created them male and female? Let's look at his word. Let's see what God has to say. Let's hear from the Lord. Genesis chapter 2, I'll be reading verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, the Bible reads this way. The Lord says this. He says, the Lord God said in Genesis 2, 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, and then he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. You know, I love the way that God prepares Adam for the arrival of Eve. Don't miss this 
for it's intentional on God's part. God makes man, he breathes life into his body. He puts him in this garden. This garden was a paradise on earth. It was well watered. It contained a constant provision of, of bounty, of food, of whatever he needed. He needed. Uh, perhaps you've uh, been to the grocery store lately or uh, ordered groceries. I'm sure you've done one of uh, the two and you've noticed that certain items are unavailable or out of stock. In other words, someone else beat you to those items. Well, not so in the beginning, not so in the garden. Adam had everything he needed, a constant bounty of food. But for the first time here in this text, in this ancient story of creation, the Lord says something is is not good. Up until now, the story resounds with, and God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, the Bible says. But now God says in chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So according to God, this is the only thing that is not good in creation. The point is that the man God has made is incomplete. God's not done. God's creation of humanity is not yet what God had already planned for it to be. And as it is now, the man cannot fulfill the purpose and the plans that God has given to him for humanity. I don't know about you, but one of the things that this crazy COVID-19 pandemic has taught me is how much I need community. I mean, I haven't played basketball in years, but every time I see a basketball go out, I want to just call up some guys and say, hey, let's play a pickup game of basketball. I, I want to have families over for cookouts and uh, for games around the table. I want to sit with family and, and friends at the table and catch up and just laugh together. You see, many of us, even you extreme introverts who love being home alone, are feeling this now, I think, after six weeks of isolation, of staying at home. You, you long for community. Well, this is... By God's design, God made us to be in community. And Adam, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, is alone. He, he lacks community. And notice how the Lord then leads Adam to sense his lack of community, to, to sense his own isolation. Verse 19, God brought the wild animals and birds to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Can't you picture God sending the animals Adam's way? I I think the the portrait here is of God in the garden uh, alongside Adam. There's no break in their relationship. There's no break in their fellowship as a result of sin. This was before sin. Perfect relationship with God. Certainly a relationship of subordination and submission. Adam is the creature. God is the creator. But it's almost as if, and I can sort of imagine God there with Adam in the garden, uh, calling the animals, the creatures, one by one to, to parade out in front of Adam. And then Adam notes their characteristics and their behaviors, and he names them uh, accordingly. He, he's doing the work of a biologist. And in the process, God is preparing Adam for what is about to happen next. He, he's teaching Adam. He's teaching this first man Uh, to appreciate his wife. He's watching, he's observing, he's interacting with the rest of the creatures, but in the process, it becomes quite clear that none of them are a fitting companion for him. Verse 20, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. 
Now, the word helper in the Bible has been the subject of uh, much uh, debate and conversation uh, in biblical interpretation and cultural interpretation, but it's not a demeaning term at all in the Bible. In fact, God is the one who is most often described as the helper. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in times of trouble. God is our help. Old Testament scholar Alan Ross says the word essentially describes one who provides what is lacking in the man, who can do what the man alone cannot do. You know, it's as, it's as if Adam is looking for someone who is like him, someone who resembles him, who looks like him and reasons like him and can exercise dominion with him and converse with him. And he finds no one. Not the massive elephant with his large and impressive trunk. Not the striped zebra with her strong legs. Not the buzzing bumblebees or the bobcat. All amazing creatures God has made, but none of them like the man. You see, left to himself, Adam cannot fulfill the mission for which God has made him. And for this, he needs someone who is like him, yet who is also unlike him. And the remedy is God's creation of the first woman. Now, the truth is, we could spend weeks on this passage alone, unpacking each verse and talking about its meaning and implications of it, but we're not going to do that today. What I want us to do today is to draw a few principles from this text and then begin to apply them to family life. So, principle number one is this God made men and women with equal dignity. God made men and women with equal dignity. We, we considered this truth last week, and so we're not going to camp out here. Suffice it to say, Genesis one twenty seven. so God created mankind in his own image. In other words, humanity, he created the, the human species, the human race. He created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. So God creates a gendered humanity, but neither gender is better than the other. Neither gender is more valuable than the other. Neither gender is more in the image of God than the other. Male and female, both made in the image of God. You know, Genesis 2 reminds us of the riddle that's uh, been around for generations. What is most like half of the moon? What is most like half of the moon? If, if you're asked this by a, a child who knows the answer, you're, you're to play along with it and uh, not uh, give away the answer. And say everything that you can think of that might resemble half of the moon without giving away the answer. Uh, is, is it a basketball? Half a basketball? No. Is, is it half an orange? No. Is it half a, a peach? No. And finally, you give up and the answer comes back the other half of the moon. What is most like half of the moon? The, the other half of the moon. And the same is true for the human race. What is most like a man? A, a woman. What, what is most like a woman in God's creation? It is a man. James Montgomery Boyce writes, he says, Men and women are different and long live the difference, as the French say, but they are also more like anything else in creation. God made men and women with Equal dignity, equal dignity, equal worth, equal value before God. However, we are not the same. But male and female, they're not of, they, they, they are of the same uh, nature. We are of the same nature, but, but we are different and distinguishable. 
God made men and women with equal dignity, but God made men and women different and distinguishable. And we live in a day and a time in which it's not PC to make too much of our differences, but equal does not mean the same. I think we know this, which is why we have best-selling books with titles like Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus and His Needs, Her Needs and something about uh, waffles and spaghetti. Uh, the list could go on. When God creates the first woman from man, the man responds in Genesis two twenty three. this is now bone of my bones, flesh of, of my flesh. She should be called woman for she was taken out of, out of man. Listen to what one pastor and author says about this text. Sam Alberry writes, he says, the woman is like the man in the right way, made of the same stuff, And unlike him in the right way, woman rather than man, she is a different example of the same kind of thing as him. She shares his nature, his vocation, and his very life. It is this complementarity that leads to profound unity between them when they eventually come together. You see, then in the very next verse, after Adam sees the first Woman after the first man sees the first woman and exclaims, this, 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 is, this is one of me, this is from me, this is like me. After that verse in Genesis 2 verse 24, the Bible says, that is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And that one flesh is more than physical. It's the uniting of two lives. It's a holistic uh, uniting together, two people coming together. This is the first and foundational description of biblical marriage. By the way, Jesus uh, references these truths. He references these texts on marriage. Uh, in fact, his own interpretation of marriage is built on this passage. Sometimes you hear folks say something like, well, that's, that's the Old Testament. That was long ago. What, what does Jesus have to say about this? Jesus doesn't seem to say very much about marriage at all, some folks might say. But Jesus, when he does speak clearly in the Gospels about marriage. He roots his instruction on marriage in these creation texts. His message comes from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, interpreted together. When Jesus was asked about divorce, listen to what he said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. He said, haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In other words, he says, haven't you read the Bible? Haven't you read the Scriptures? Haven't you read the Word of God? Don't you know of the creation account that God created the male and female in the beginning? And for this reason, a man will leave his parents, his mom and dad, and unite to a wife and become one f- family. Jesus goes on, he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Church, this was essentially Jesus' message. God made them male and female for this reason a man will leave. I know this is not a popular or prominent message in our day, but in other words, marriage, Jesus is saying marriage exists because and only because we have gender. According to Jesus, marriage depends upon gender differences, and God instituted it because of gender differences. And that leads us to the next point. God designed marriage to reflect his nature. God designed marriage to reflect his nature, designed marriage to reflect who he is. So God makes them different yet 
Through marriage, he, he makes them one. Different, yet united. Both made in God's image, yet distinct from one another. And the picture of, of marriage in Genesis 2, 24 is a picture of unity. Not sameness, but unity. Living in integrity and spiritual unity and prior to the fall without sin. Distinct persons. Different. We know, we know this. If you're married, you, you know full well that you are not just like your spouse. You have different personalities. You have different likes and interests. You're, you're not the same person. Different persons, distinct persons, yet united together physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Different yet one. Where else do we see this? In the Bible. We see the nature of God. We see it in the nature of the God that we worship, the God of the Bible. He's a God who is Trinitarian, meaning he is one God in three persons. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And just as both men and women are made in his image and have equal worth before him, so each person of the Trinity or each person of the Godhead, you might say, is of equal worth. All are equally divine. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One is not more God or more important than the other. Sure, there are relationships within the Godhead implying various roles and responsibilities, even various ministries, even leadership and submission, but all are co-equal and co-eternal, enjoying perfect fellowship and harmony with one another. And friends, God designed human marriage to reflect his character in this way. In other words, marriage, according to God's design, shows us something of God's character and his person. And so husbands and wives, let's trash the worldly lie that marriage is all about me, myself, and I. And let's begin to ask the question, how can I know God more through my marriage? How can I know God more through my marriage? How can I know the one who made me more through my relationship with my husband or wife. And, and if you're not married, perhaps asking the question, how, how can I look to faithful marriages and see God's hand and learn to, to know him more by observing husbands and wives together in unity, loving and serving one another? How can my love for my spouse and my spouse's love for me teach me about the God who made me? about his design and his creativity and his provision and his plan for us to live in community. How can I know God more through my marriage? But that's not the whole story. That's good news. But that's not the best news. That's not the whole story. As the story of God's word unfolds and the message of redemption, the message of salvation is carried out, the, the Bible makes clear that when we embrace God's design for marriage, when, when we are faithful to God's design, we reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. We reflect, we mirror the very best news of all. God designed human marriage to be a tangible picture and practice of the greatest story ever enacted, the story of God saving sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. Friends, God not only designed marriage to reflect his nature, but God designed marriage to reflect his gospel. God designed human marriage, the human institution of marriage to reflect his, his gospel. We see this clearly in the New Testament. In the New Testament letter of Ephesians, Paul is writing to the church and in Paul's letter to Christians living in Ephesus, he describes the, the theological transformation that takes place, that God plans, that God initiates, that God completes 
when someone turns and trusts to Jesus in Jesus for salvation. And then he goes on, and as he often does, Paul moves into the practical implications of living in light of this gospel, of receiving this gospel. In other words, uh, there, there's a message to believe. There's theology. There's doctrine. There's something to receive and to believe. And then as you believe this truth, it ought to impact the way that, that you live. Have you believed this story? Have, have you believed the gospel? Have you been rescued by God through Jesus? Have you received forgiveness of sins and eternal life because you've turned and trusted in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? If you've not turned and trusted in Christ and turned to Him today, turn to Him now. Cry out to, to the Lord Jesus, the Savior. Acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you've gone your own way, that you've turned your back on God, that you've rebelled against Him time and time again, that you have often lived for yourself disregarding uh, who God is and what He asks of you. Acknowledge your sin and turn to the Savior. Turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for you. And then, once you've turned to him, and if you have turned to him, then this good news, the Bible teaches, must impact every nook and cranny of your life. Paul just assumes that it's going to. Paul assumes the gospel is going to impact every part of us, every relationship we have, including, by God's grace, the Spirit's work in our lives, including our marriages. Ephesians 5, he gives some specific instructions for husbands and wives. And as he comes to the end of that chapter, the end of that section, Paul quotes our Genesis text. Listen to what he says. Ephesians 5, verse 31, he says, For this reason, a man will leave his Father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It becomes evident as we read the Bible that the, the Bible's message on marriage is, is consistent and it's clear. Paul and Jesus root their instruction and interpretation and beliefs on marriage in the creation account. And then he goes on, Paul says in the next verse, he says, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ. And the church. In other words, Paul says marriage, this marriage relationship is a mystery. But we shouldn't expect anything less because the relationship that it mirrors, that it reflects, is all the more mysterious. The relationship between God and his people. In essence, Paul says that human marriage is not just about a husband and a wife coming together in mutual commitment. It is ultimately about the greatest husband, Jesus, being united with his beautiful bride. The church is people. Two different yet complementary parties coming together in union. Jesus is our sacrificial groom. The church is his submissive bride. So when we embrace, church, when we embrace God's design for marriage, we display Christ's love for his church. We display the gospel of Jesus Christ. I tell every young couple that I meet with that uh, is preparing for marriage this. I say, your marriage is not ultimately about you. It's not just about you. Yes, it involves you and is a gift from God for your good and your growth together. But your marriage is about someone and something far greater and grander and more significant than any of us. Your marriage is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by being faithful to God's design, we get to participate in the spread of his gospel. 
Greatest news, the greatest story ever told, the story that his church is built upon, the reason that we pause for worship, the reason that we long to gather together with God's people and to sing his praises and to live our lives for his glory because he is a God who has rescued us and called us into relationship with him. In other words, faithful husbands and wives provide a tangible picture of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. What a privilege. What a responsibility. Let's take that responsibility seriously for the glory of God. Let's embrace God's design. Let's trust his wisdom and let's mirror his gospel. How can I mirror the gospel of Jesus in my marriage? How can I mirror the gospel in my marriage? That's what we married folks ought to be asking. How can my love for my wife or my love for my husband, how can it point my children and my neighbors and my friends to Jesus Christ? As I want us to take a few moments before we conclude our time together this morning and, and simply pray that that would be the case. If you're gathered there with your spouse, why don't you take their hand at this time? Pray together. Pray that your marriage, regardless of what it has been in the past, regardless of what it's been even today, pray that your marriage would mirror the gospel of Jesus. They would point people to Jesus. If you're a child and you're still listening, why don't you pray for mom and dad's marriage? Why don't you pray that their marriage would teach you about Jesus? Pray for your grandparents' marriage. Pray for your teacher's marriage. Pray for those in the church. Let's be people who pray for our marriages, that our marriages would be built upon the truth of the gospel. Be quick to forgive as God has forgiven us. And that as a result, our marriages would point people to Jesus. Let's pause now and pray for our marriages in this way. Let's pray together. Well, thank you for joining us for worship uh, on this Lord's Day. Uh, thank you for being a part of what God is doing through his local church here at Meadowbrook. Uh, we pray that you continue to trust him, to serve him, to seek him, to worship him, to grow as you walk with him as a family, as an individual, as part of a church family uh, during these days. And church, let me just say thank you uh, for your trust in the Lord, your faithfulness, uh, your ongoing support through prayer, uh, through conversations with uh, fellow church members and your ongoing giving uh, in support of the ministry of the church. We are dependent on you and you have responded in a way, I believe, that glorifies God and that shows trust uh, in his provision and a commitment to him. And as a result of your faithful and ongoing giving, we are able to continue our ministries here at the church and even meet needs as they come our way. Well, let me invite you now uh, to hear our benediction through song, uh, to hear a prayer of God's blessing, of his favor, of his peace as we go this week.